Welcome to the Internet History Podcast. I'm your host, Brian McCullough. Dale Doherty was the organizer of the world's first ever web developers conference, the World Wide Web Wizards Workshop, all the way back in July of 1993. This was the conference where Tim Berners-Lee and Mark Andreessen met for the first time, and it was worth speaking to Dale just to hear the behind the scenes of that encounter. But Dale Doherty was also the co-founder of the web's first ever commercial website, Global Network Navigator, or GNN. Today, Dale is probably best known as the founder of Maker Magazine, Maker Fairs, and the entire Maker Movement. Quick side note, this is going to be the final episode of this calendar year. As I did last year, I'm going to take the next two weeks off. So look for a new episode January 4th, a brand new researched and written episode. Until then, please enjoy this fascinating interview with Dale Doherty. Dale Doherty, thanks for coming on the Internet History Podcast. Thank you for having me. Um, I'd like to start at the beginning, um, going all the way back to um, maybe meeting Tim O'Reilly, getting started with Tim O'Reilly, and and getting started with uh, O'Reilly Media. Sure. Uh, well, uh, O'Reilly Media uh, really started as O'Reilly and Associates, and it was in outside of Boston, suburb of Newton. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, Tim worked out of uh, the, uh, the loft in his barn, uh, which is kind of like a converted garage. And uh, it was a technical writing firm. And I first met Tim uh, because I, I came in to take a, you know, a job on a contract to, to write a manual. Now, I should tell you that um, I'm really not a uh, – I had an English background, so I was right, a writer right. more than an engineer. Tim was a classics major, and, uh, and uh, to some degree, I think what we figured out is we could, by asking lots of questions and asking people to – give us better answers each time. Uh, we could understand what engineers were talking about and try to write manuals in layman's terms uh, so they could understand how to do something. And so, you know, early on we were writing uh, um, uh, manuals, not books, and we were, we were uh, um, hired as, as contractors to do that. Uh, you know, the... What happened during that time, though, is we we began writing introductory manuals for Unix systems, which was in the in the mid '80s, where on Unix was on departmental computing. Um, it was called mini computers, and so um, Tim um, kind of saw an opportunity to to um, obtain the rights or save the rights to the work we were doing, so that we could possibly resell it, and uh, and I had the idea or, or interest maybe of taking those books and seeing if we could sell them someday. And, and I think that to make a short story of it, uh, you know, we, we did our first books as the nutshell handbooks they were called and we printed them off a laser printer and, uh, 
uh, bound them with, with staples, and we brought them to a Unix Expo in New York City, and we sold them for five bucks a, per, uh, a pop. And it was one of the best feelings I've ever had in my life. <laughs> you know, it, it was at a trade show where people walk around looking at big computers, big, big displays, big companies. And we were in this sort of little booth, and we had uh, two titles where um, uh, 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 well, um, was uh, uh, programming with curses. Uh, no, no, it was uh, uh, reading and writing term cap entries, and uh, and uh, I think it was uh, learning the VI editor. Uh, you know, they were pretty obscure, but they the people kind of liked that that there were books on these topics uh, for system that we're learning and. Uh, um, uh, that I will say is more for the future of my work, but the third title book that we produced was Managing Projects with Make, mm. and uh, and it was about the you know how to how to package up uh, programs and and the make uh, utility in Unix. But you know Tim and I also wrote a book at the time uh, based on the tools we were using, uh, and uh, called Unix Text Processing, and it was for another publisher, but uh, in the in the business of producing manuals, um, we were using the utilities that were on Unix to write the manuals. And so we got really familiar with the Unix system, which in our view, it, you know, it comes out of Bell Labs, but it certainly was an operating system and it had programming utilities. Uh, but it also, because they were a research organization, they had developed typesetting tools uh, that allowed you to um, for them to write their reports allowed us to write manuals. And so Unix text processing was about how to create books using that, uh, those, those tools. So just to be clear though, um, you, you guys got into doing tech and computer books and manuals just sort of by accident. It, it, you just sort of kind of fell back into it sort of. Well, I, I don't know by accident completely. I mean, Tim, um, had a, had a partner, that he started the company with, um, who had already gone and left the, the business by the time. But uh, the partner knew programming and Tim knew writing, and they kind of worked together. And, uh, you know, I, I, I was basically self-taught in these areas, uh, and, and you'd say Tim was as well, but uh, um, it wasn't something I took in school, but I, I mm -hmm. began to figure things out. And I actually thought, of, you know, I, I wish yeah, my... my Takeaway was I wish they had taught this differently in school because they kind of said you had to be good at, at math and a lot of other things which I didn't think of myself as being good at. But when I got into even the minimal amount of programming I did, it was hey this is just logic and I, I take a lot of philosophy and other things. So mm -hmm. so it seemed to be a really interesting exercise how to solve a problem writing code. Well, uh, one thing that we should point out about those Unix machines as well is they um, they had TCP/IP. Um, and so um, Unix machines were how most people got on, on the Internet in the 80s. I'm wondering if you could tell us the story of, of your learning about the Internet and then later on learning about the web. Yeah, well, you know, the, you know in, the, in the time we're doing this, the, um, you know, Unix uh, had all these networking utilities and, and they – you could connect them, and we were probably using just dial-up modems to download Usenet news and and uh, and do do email. Some of our early books were like managing UUCP, which uh, you know was sort of the utility used to connect 
some of the computers in a, in a local network and send share files and various things, um, all command line oriented. Uh, I'm trying to think, um, you know, we began, um, uh, you know, the easiest thing for me to remember in some ways is we, O'Reilly uh, was working on a book called um, The Whole Internet uh, User Guide Catalog. Right. And uh, kind of referencing Stuart Brand's Whole Earth Catalog. And uh, we really kind of were beginning to see that there you know, were users uh, interested in, in the internet and uh, more people were getting access to it. So we wanted to kind of give them a field guide for, for uh, navigating it. And uh, so, you know, that's, um, in, in some ways we were already using the internet, like, um, as a, you know, as, as a means to connect things, but then almost like the big eye in internet started to take off and we were looking at that as well. I, I, when we were working on that book, I, I had met Tim Berners-Lee earlier and uh, I had really taken and, and appreciated the, the, the web. And so I, remember having a, a lunch with Tim Berners-Lee and Tim O'Reilly uh, in Cambridge, Massachusetts, because Tim was teaching at, at MIT for a summer program. And, uh, you know, I really wanted to get a chapter in the whole Internet book on, on, uh, on the web, and, uh, and I think we succeeded in doing that. Mm -hmm. The early utilities for the Internet were things like Gopher, FTP for file transfer. Gopher was sort of the information right. system. And at the time when, when the web was emerging, there were a lot of people, especially administrators and, and more geeky types that, that dismissed the web and, uh, and were really fond of Gopher. One, it was a little bit easy to set up. It was kind of a hierarchical file system approach. You just put files in the right places, and that's what you, you, you got to. Um, uh, and it was text-based. It could be read anywhere. And, uh, you know, the, the web was was sort of breaking some of the models of a command line uh, oriented uh, internet. Right. And that, that they didn't like that much. Well, um, I don't know if I'm going to break the chronology here or so, but um, yeah. did you also uh, hire the, the guy that created the Viola web browser? Did he join? I did. Okay. Um, so, so in about, um, see, I'll get there in one way. Uh, Sure. So I sort of got interested in how our books that we began publishing like in about 85 um, should, one day books about computers should be delivered on a computer. And, but because we were working on a Unix, on, on a Unix system, it was, it was a harder problem to solve. I began going to hypertext conferences. I began talking to vendors who had like large computer documentation um, the time it was like Silicon Graphics and, and others. Uh, and uh, they were thinking, well, yeah, that'd be great if we didn't have to deliver bulky manuals. And O'Reilly was in the business of, like, at this time, things like the X window system and, and Unix were, you know, the Unix system was a set of seven manuals. And we were kind of in the business of improving those and licensing them out or, 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 or um, selling them as physical books. And, and it was pretty clear that our customers would want you know, digital versions of those, but there wasn't clear how to do that. Um, and 
I had done an experiment just really to prove that I took like the Unix command um, manual uh, and ported it to uh, to HyperCard, <laughs> and um, because I thought it was a sort of publishing system that was easy uh, easy for me to do this, and and I, we actually did sell it as a product for a while. I don't think we sold that many, but it was really just a demonstration or experiment that that you could do this. And so I had in my head that I needed uh, something like HyperCard, but for Unix. Um, and something ideally that was free, uh, that people uh, didn't want to pay for an expensive hypertext system uh, just to be able to access a book. So I found Viola as a, uh, a young man named Pei Wei was at the University of California, Berkeley. And he was working on this as a project. Um, he was a geology major. Uh, but he had gone to the experimental computing lab and worked on their computers there to, to, to make Viola. Uh, and, you know, in essence, he was trying to, in many ways, the sort of architecture of it and stuff was similar to HyperCard, and you would use a scripting language to, uh, to organize content and create interactivity, um, create graphics and things. And, uh, you know, Pei was, uh, was working away on it, and... My, I thought initially that I, I wanted to do just a book on Viola, and that was my state ago. I think I did sign him to a book contract to, to just write something about Viola. And then, you know, I, I eventually formed a small group in Berkeley, a uh, digital media group for O'Reilly, and, and hired him and, and eventually a couple others to just sort of work on Viola. But one of the things Pei was doing, I thought, was building – uh, um, a system in which we could deliver content. And so I, I thought of it as a kind of book, a book system or, uh, in that regard. And uh, one day, Pei, um, Pei introduced me to the World Wide Web and, and said, uh, um, uh, I built a, a web browser inside of Viola. So he kind of built it as an application inside his system, right. you know, like a scripting application. And that was the first time I, I think I had seen graphics displayed in, you know, in a document. Again, like you think of it before this, the CD-ROM world is existing. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's really rich in terms of the graphics and interactivity. You call it multimedia. But the Internet was pretty much a text world only. And the idea of, of uh, you know, maybe, maybe the people were distributing images on Usenet groups, but the integration of the two wasn't happening. And, uh, uh, and and that was my first exposure, really, to the to the web. And I thought, boy, this is perfect. You know, we can actually we can not only just display text, but we can style it, you know, formatted you know text, and we can add graphics uh, and and layout to to this. So I, I was really interested in that, and that's why we formed the group and we started working in that direction. And I I, I think at the same time. I had formed a group um, uh, as part of a founding uh, of people for a group called the Davenport Group, and we were trying to get um, a standard for computing manuals, uh, electronic computing manuals. We needed to kind of agree on what the format of those manuals would take so that you could render them and display them online. And we settled on SGML um, at, at the time and, and began a group to define uh, that that 
kind of standard. It's sort of like an industrial standard for, for computing manuals. And uh, uh, I, I went to the Hypertext conference in 1991 in San Antonio, and we were going to have a Davenport group meeting there. And uh, that's where I first met Tim Berners-Lee, who was doing a poster session uh, about the World Wide Web because his paper on the World Wide Web was rejected by the Hypertext Conference. They didn't think it was important. And uh, that was the you know, first time I, I saw that and, and kind of understood it, and then kind of coupled with Pay implementing this uh, as, a, as a graphical browser. Um, I really thought this was a new direction, and I wanted to go after the web, uh, and, and kind of away from manuals and bigger books. And sort of the HTML was a much more complex grammar around uh, uh, um, a format for, for books. And, and eventually what became HTML was, was simpler. And given the bandwidth issues and other things, it just looked like a more interesting direction that I wanted to go in. And, uh, but um, sort of the leap ahead um, seeing those two things, I, I kind of, you know, Pay had built a browser. I met Berners Lee and I kind of understood the, the system he was building. Kind of understood it wasn't really widely appreciated. Uh, you know, it was the people, the Gophervers or the web people, the hypertext community thought, well, it's not really a true hypertext system. It doesn't have this or that. Um, and, uh, 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 and, and then I was looking for an application related to books. And so uh, Pay and I worked to take the catalog from the whole internet user's guide and catalog um, to put it on HTML pages. And, uh, but what was so interesting about it at the time, and I, that's, I got so excited about it, was that you clicked on a link and it took you to a server in another country, another part of the world. Mm -hmm. And so it really was kind of the first portal kind of thing that we had started. Uh, here's a guide to resources. And the resources weren't all on that computer. They were out there. And I remember presenting it to people and saying, oh, you know, uh, this, is, this is what's happening here. I just want you to know we haven't loaded all this data here. We're going out over the Internet and grabbing it and displaying it here. And all we're doing is kind of using an address to locate that information and bring it here. And we went, uh, that was 92 and in 1992, in August, we went and presented, uh, we set up a computer um, at uh, Interop in San Francisco. And we uh, demonstrated that uh, just to see if people thought it was interesting. We did it really to promote the book, but, you know, we can, hey, come over here, try this, click on this, look at this, you're interested in astronomy. Oh, here are four sites out there that, Astronomy. And of course, most at the time, most of the links went to FTP sites or Gopher sites. There were a few web pages. The most famous one probably at the time was the Vatican Archive. There's someone had, had scanned some materials about you know from the Vatican and, and put that up, and 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 that was kind of a, a genuine website. Uh, but there weren't that many of them at the time. And you know, based on the feedback we got at Interop. Uh, uh, for, we decided to take this more seriously and, and put a little more energy into it. And, and it actually went, uh, we, we made it into a kiosk and it went into the computer literacy bookstore in like Sunnyvale, California, near, near San Jose. And uh, we had it operating there so people could get sort of a taste of the internet uh, through that kiosk. And in many ways it was, you know, I, I think a, a shift from the internet as command line 
you know, retrieval to the internet as this sort of more visual interface where, where like a book or something, you saw something you were interested in, you, you know, you pressed it and it, it went to another page or another site in this case. And uh, it was really, uh, I think Tim kind of used the term at the time, an inter information interface. And that's what we, you know, saw there as, as having a lot of power. And uh, so that kind of takes us, you know, up to uh, mm -hmm. the end of, of 92. Well, so just to... Uh make clear then so you basically put this book the whole internet user's guide onto the web as sort of a catalog <laughs> right exactly okay yeah. and so it is in essence really kind of the first portal because it is showing people all right this is what's out there uh to explore on the internet yeah. and so it, it's serving as a portal you know two full years before even even yahoo gets started yeah yeah and it's um I mean, that's a, which was, I, you know, we didn't have those words and we didn't care right. about it that way. But uh -huh. it was just, hey, here's a guide to the Internet. And, and uh, rather than, you know, just telling you how to use tools or utilities, this was more, hey, just explore. And, and that's what we thought was really fun. So, again, um, I don't know if I'm jumping ahead in the chronology, but um, I'm curious to hear about uh, the World Wide Web Wizards Workshop uh, in, in mm -hmm. 1993, which I, I believe is this the, the first meeting of, of web developers ever? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, I've gotten to know Tim pretty well. O'Reilly, um, at the time they had an office in and moved to Cambridge, uh, Massachusetts. So Tim was at, Tim Berners-Lee was at uh, MIT for that summer of 93. And um, so let me just let me give you a little preface. I, this, after the kiosk, um, I was convinced there was somehow a product in this. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and I began working on that. It wasn't going to be a book product. It was something that was made for the Internet. Um, and it was, you know, in many ways, hey, this is a catalog of things on the Internet. Let's build that out and let's, let's start writing about the Internet um, and what you can do and what you find and, and that kind of thing. And so I, I came up um, with a product idea called GNN. Uh, it's a global network navigator. And... Uh, and we can come in and come back to that, but, uh, you know, what I needed for GNN to be successful is to have stable server and a stable browser. Um, and, and Tim Berners-Lee had, had defined, I think, pretty well the, the basic server and the protocol, HTTP, and basic HTML. Uh, but... In the spring, as, as we were working on it, and again, we were doing the early work using the Viola browser. There was a couple other browsers, like the Cello browser, which is out of the Cornell Law School, um, Tim Berners-Lee's command line browser. Um, there was Lynx, which was a command line browser from Kansas. Right. Um, and uh, so there were different people working on this. And in, in many ways, the, this is a, time, a kind of a critical time where control of Whatever the web was, wasn't just in, in Tim's hands. So while he was the founder of it and defined the core specs, they were evolving. And in the spring, uh, Mosaic was announced. Um, and it came from NCSA, National Center for Supercomputing Applications, uh, in Champaign, Illinois. 
And uh, that's where Mark Andreessen uh, was, and, and he was the hotshot uh, who, who really uh, uh, changed, changed things tremendously. Uh, I think the release of that browser and uh, the um, uh, acceptance of it really uh, got the, started to get the web on the map. Um, and, um, and so in some ways, I, 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 I kind of realized that this was a good thing. One reason uh, Mosaic is important is that they were going to be multi-platform. They were going to do uh, an X Windows slash Unix version. They were going to do a, a Windows version. They're going to do a Mac version. So like Viola only ran on a Unix version. I didn't have really Mac versions or anything else. And we knew that wasn't a, a good thing if you wanted to spread widely. So uh, uh, so one is, is it was um, professing to solve that multi-platform issue and you could have Mosaic on the platform of your choice. And the second, you know, uh, was that Mosaic simply was more stable than Viola, um, easier to install. Um, Viola was a system uh, in, in which an application was a web browser, and you, so you could have problems with the system, you could have problems with the application. Uh, uh, you know, I think Mosaic was a simpler uh, uh, code base, and and it worked. Um, it did what it wanted. Now, the the challenge then was, well, Mark was kind of, you know, if you control the interface which later on we saw this happen with Microsoft and others. If you control the front end, you kind of dictate the standards for the web because, you know, why would you, um, uh, if, if you want to add in a tag to HTML, um, it's all dependent on the browser and being able to interpret that tag. Well, for, uh, for, for example, like the, the image tag famously. Yes. And that was actually the one outcome of that is, at the time, it, it sounds almost like an arcane battle in, in a way, but there was the command line browsers and the visual browsers or graphical you know, user interface uh, browsers that could, the, the latter could display images, the former couldn't. And, you know, the, the command line browsers, um, people developing them wanted to know how to handle the image tag. And... Uh, they couldn't obviously display the image uh, in any way. And so the one thing that I know came out of that workshop was the alt tag for the image browser. Um, and uh, it allowed you to supply text in place of the image. If you couldn't render the, the, the image, you could fall back and display the text. Now, for me, that had a real specific example. Was I wanted to use visuals to convey what GNN was. I wanted to have a the words GNN in an image. And if you couldn't display that image, you, you could display this alt text. But you didn't want to display both. You know, you, like, you didn't want to have to have the image and then have GNN as text. You wanted to be able to switch between the two given the browser. Mm -hmm. But um, I, I think that was, uh, you know, for me, that was a, a victory, getting, getting that kind of change in there. But uh, I think it was uh, uh, an opportunity for 30 people to come together and who had been web developers relatively recently, um, who had um, experience and, and knowledge and get to know each other. Uh, NTSA brought about five or six programmers. And, and Andreessen was one uh, of them? Andreessen was one of mm -hmm. them. Um, 
and uh, and uh, and then you know the other browsers I mentioned mm-hmm. were represented there as well. Lumontuli, Lumontuli from from Lynx, and and you know I can't. There was Chris who did the the Windows browser. Chris Wilson, yeah. Yeah, and Alexander did the the Mac browser. Um, but, you know, it was a chance for us to meet each other. Um, I think we went to dinner in an Italian restaurant kind of in the basement where they had kind of stars on the ceiling. It was, kind of, <laughs> it was sort of bizarre. But, uh, uh, and, and I think it gave us a chance to start talking about what, um, I, I mean, Joseph from NCSA uh, kind of ran the group there, which included Mark. And, um, and they're going on a walk room and we're talking about, well, there kind of needs to be a, a sort of standards organization that manages this process of deciding what goes in there or otherwise, you know, I mean, the way it's kind of looked at the time is Mark could really, really make a decision about what to add to the browser and everybody would have to go along with it, whether they wanted to or not. And it, uh, Mark, Mark was really smart and did not make bad decisions. I'll say that, but um, nonetheless to sort of look at the, the web as a, as a whole, you, you, you wanted to kind of think about how could you have, a way that uh, um, ideas were vetted and agreed upon by, by some set of uh, folks that had an interest in it or stakeholders. And eventually that would be the, the W3C. But uh, So um, yeah. just to be clear, uh, um, Tim Berners-Lee was at, at this as well, correct? Yes, he was. Yeah. Just and he th- kind of led it. I mean, you have to think about, like, in some ways there's an age dynamic. You know, uh, Mark is a, you know, a, I don't know if he's a software junior, but he's pretty young. He's full of fire. Um, he, he, he certainly believed he was the smartest person in the room. Um, and, you know, Tim had, you know, this was kind of Tim's baby. And, uh, you know, there were times when I think Mark was snickering at what Tim would say and, you know, not either in disagreement or as a, you know, somewhat sophomoric way of, of uh, participating. Um, and, and, and I, I wasn't sure what to do about all of that, uh, but the fact that they hadn't met and hadn't talked uh, previously, uh, you know, was all I, in some ways, could remedy that putting these people together, at least they get to know each other and and, uh, and realize that we all have to work together on this, that it doesn't belong to one person. Well, just real quickly, and then we'll, we'll get back to GNN. Do, did you get the impression that maybe like Andreessen represented a different vision for what the web could become than, than what um, Tim Berners-Lee yeah. had, perhaps? No, it's probably more on topics and vision. It's just sort of like, you know, it's sort of a young programmer, you know, I, I can fix that and, and you know, just let me do it. Uh, it's, it's like the quick and dirty solution versus, um, you know, let's talk it over and think about it and, and uh, explore alternatives. There's just sort of different ways of doing things. And, uh, um, uh, you know, for Mark, it was just, Hey, it's just, it's just code. I, I just, I could do this in 10 minutes, you know, and versus like enough of Tim representatives, but you know, a large company that might have, you know, uh, a specification, the review of the specification, you know, a code, uh, code review and testing and all these other steps. This is just sort of a wild west. You just go out and change it and put it out there and it's done. All right, so let's let's get back to the story of, of GNN because um, you had been working on this uh, 
earlier in in 1993. And so, tell me about it, 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 what you imagined Global Network uh, Navigator would be about. Well, I thought its core features were sort of a catalog, as I said, sort of here's a bunch of stuff. Here's how to find out about things on the internet. And, you know, a bit like a card catalog, it had, you know, a hierarchical organization. You look up a, a topic like uh, agriculture or, um, you know, or something else, and, and you would find a list of, of sites in there. Um, but I, I also kind of wanted to add something that was like a magazine, um, meaning it was articles or information about things that are going on. And, and as we developed it, we, we kind of had sections. Uh, so if you think about um, you know, an area like travel, we were linking out to sites that, you know, such as you know, a State Department site that might have information about you know, uh, uh, for world travel. Uh, and, and, and then you know, to some degree we'd be writing about an article on travel, not, not necessarily a standard like, travel log, but like how you might use the Internet to do travel or other things like that, um, or how you know someone who's going out and like adventure travel um, and, and uh, um, kind of how they're planning their trip and how they're uh, doing it. Some of it was initially there wasn't a whole lot of internet to cover there. It was a little bit more basic travel stuff. But the idea is that we could do some of the we could cover some of the information that you got in print or or elsewhere, and uh, you know try to put that together. So you you have the guide, and then um, you're you're adding in news. Is it is it sort of just like news about the internet and, and about the web and that sort of thing? Yeah, um, but it's more articles, I okay. would say, than news, and it's more feature oriented, like mm-hmm. tra- like you say, travel. Um, you know, I, I you know it wasn't I have to say I wasn't that clear about what we were doing there, except I just. I, I I felt it wanted to be more consumer oriented mm-hmm. than technical, um, and I wanted to. What I thought was real interesting. I mean, I did this kind of almost on a daily basis. Is just introduce people to the internet, not as a technology, but as this kind of inter- information interface. You can find things that boy, you could never get to, in, even in a library, um, and uh, you know, you could really go to the source directly. Uh, and that's what fascinated me. You know, did you know that just came up from London? It's a map of this, you know, and uh, oh, over here it just came from you know, Orlando, Florida. It's a website over there. And I, I went around talking to people about this, and they, they kind of at the time confused the browser with the web a lot, and um, they all they thought like, what's where do I buy that software? And it was like, well, you get the software to to browse the internet, but then you're going out on the internet and using that. It's not like there's a, a CD-ROM with all this data on it that you put in your computer. So um, it, was a, it was a shift in how people were thinking about things. Uh, and also you're starting to experiment with, with commerce and things like that because there's another component yeah. of GNN is, is the marketplace. Can you describe what, what you were starting to, to, to do with things like yeah. the, the marketplace? Well, uh, you know, when we launched GNN at the next year's interop in, in August of 93, um, there was an article that, I mean, based on the announcement in the Wall Street Journal, and it was sort of advertising comes to the Internet. And, uh, you know, 
I, I think in conversations with uh, some of the people that were building GNN with me, um, Rob Raish is one of them, and Tim O'Reilly, uh, you know, we thought, well, you know, this is probably an advertising business model here that things are, are you know, free to everybody, but we kind of get sponsors for it. What we thought at the time, and was maybe a little bit naive, that the uh, marketplace and the internet could be uh, where you told a story that other people could care about. It was a, you know, it was Thanksgiving coffee um, could tell the story about how they source their coffee beans and how they how they're different than others. That's not something that they do in traditional ads that have one page in a magazine or 30 seconds on a radio. That you could actually give people an opportunity to explore uh, in more depth um, uh, information about a product or service. And uh, so that's kind of the direction we had for what advertising could be on the internet. Uh, and it was, um, you know, it, the idea certainly was that they would help sponsor the site, pay for its operations, and underwrite the, the, the work of the team to produce uh, content that other people care about. So it's kind of a traditional media model. Mm -hmm. Sort of uh, akin to... Um... The the magazine model, the the print magazine model. Yeah, yeah. Um, Not too far from that. So the legend holds that um, the the very first advertiser was was a law firm um, that buys a um, a sponsored link on GNN. Is is that is that how you yeah. remember it as well? Yeah, um, it was Heller Ehrman, and um, uh, it was our, you know uh, Dan Heller was our lawyer uh, for O'Reilly, so. You know, we convince them to spend some money with us, and, and they, they, they actually can claim that. Um, you know, to, uh, uh, yeah, it was just, it, it was really informational way to saying, hey, you know, you, you know Marketplace, here's, here's Heller Urban Law and here's what they do, and go, go learn more about it. And that was in uh, maybe early '94. I'm I'm pretty sure that this is before Hotwire does its experiments with with banner ads. Correct? Yeah, this is when we launched in '90 '93, at least with the Heller Ehrman. Okay. Um, you know the 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 um, there's something that happens later, um, which is more in the banner advertising mode, um, and. Uh, let me just jump into that. Sure, I, sure. I, I'm not clear on the timing. Yeah, it's yeah, yeah. 94, but it might be a whole year, 94. Yeah, go so, ahead. So after, as the browser started to take off, particular Mosaic, um, the uh, most visited page on the Internet or the web was the What's New page. Uh, and it's where, when, you know, if you created a new site, you would try to inform, uh, you would try to get listed on this site. So it was... Uh, it was popular. It was well trafficked, but uh, NCSA, uh, uh, you know, they recognized the value of it, but they really weren't a publishing group that had people that cared about it. So it was sort of like the programmers would have to go add sites to that list uh, in their spare time when they weren't were doing code. And so I, knowing Joseph and others, I I asked them if we could publish basically license the page and maintain it for them and that we would try to sell advertising on it. And, uh, and that's, you know, is what happened. And we began um, updating it more regularly. Um, so, uh, and, and, but it was, 
because it was the most traffic page on the internet, we thought, well, this is you know better than anything we have in GNN. This is the you know the place where we can get advertising, and we did sell uh, a banner ad to to Mastercard on that, and they you know that was that was our first. Uh, example of, of banner ads, you know, at the top of this, this NTSA What's New page. Um, and uh, as I said, I believe that was in 94. Mm -hmm. um, the, um, so at, it, by the end of 94, and, and I guess with your tie-in with the NCSA What's New page, um, you got a GNN becomes quite popular. Like I, I think by the end of '94, you're you're already you know serving you know millions of of hits and things like this. Mm -hmm. Is yeah. there is there any is there any um, attempt to like do registration or anything like that at this time, or, or you're just still sticking with the we're, we're serving up media and and um, paying for yeah. it with ads? Yeah, pretty much that. Um... I don't recall if we had registration almost ever. Uh, you know, so many of these things were kind of new. Even mm -hmm. uh, how would how would you capture like forms and other things? Uh, well, that came a little bit later. The uh, uh, you know our biggest problem at the time was just keeping up with things. You know, like the catalog had to be updated so much. You know, there's so many things coming online. I mean. The, the ideal thing was the NCSA What's New page gave us in, uh, a glimpse at what's new on the web, and then we wanted to organize that into the catalog um, so that you could find it again, you know, put it in the right topic or, or do that. And at the time, I, I basically had to hire librarians um, because they kind of knew the information problems uh, there, and, and I thought they did a really great job of adapting to the web and uh, and figuring that kind of stuff out. So it was really um, how do you you know we we had no sense of doing this algorithmically or 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 in any automated way. It was just throwing people at it to keep track of what's going on, uh, looking for things, or getting notified of things, and then figuring out you know where to put it uh, and update it. So by by 95 or so, um, you're successful enough with the ads and things like that that I, I think I had read that your headcount reaches like 25 or 30 people just at GNN. Mm -hmm. um, and so what do you have any recollection of what sort of um, ad rates you're able to get from, from people like MasterCard and, and Zima and, and, and early advertisers like that? Yeah. I don't really, but, you know, it wasn't enormous. It might, you know, be in the mm -hmm. 10,000 the $20,000 range, mm -hmm. um, you know, for uh, a month campaign or, or, or longer. Uh, but um, we, you know, it, it, you know, our challenge at the time was how do you finance the growth of this? It wasn't going to produce enough revenue on its own uh, to do that. Uh, and, uh, um, and yet we needed sort of more resources than what we had. I have an, another question, sort of backtracking just a bit, but when you launch in 93, it's still kind of the gray area where is, is are you even allowed to do commercial things on the internet? What, yeah. What, what, yeah. Did you ever get any sort of 
feedback about that? Like, uh, you're not supposed to be doing this on, on the internet at that point? You know, we thought we might, but we didn't get really anything that um, amounts to that. I, I think there might be a, a, you know, there was this kind of funny thing is, is the idea of the commercial internet in, in some ways was to make the internet available to everybody. <laughs> uh, and those who wanted it not, not to be uh, uh, commercial ended up sort of arguing that it should just be limited to researchers and academics who had set up the network originally. And so I, I think their position didn't really, uh, it was, it was hard to sort of defend that position that, that you, you know, that that was a great free resource for the elite, but everybody else should kind of stay off it. And I, and I, I think the, you know, the, the similar issue of, um, uh, uh, you know, we, we were a company and not a, not an academic institution or, or something like that. Um, uh, but, but partially because uh, our, you know, our books, uh, the Unix background and Tim's, you know, advocacy for lots of things. And I think it was just, it never amounted to, uh, um, an argument against it. So every... mitigated any argument. Right, right. Um, Everything in this time period is is so compressed. Everything seems to move so fast at the at the beginning of of the web here. Um, so GNN is only a, uh, it's, it's started in ninety three, and then is it ninety five or ninety six that that AOL purchases it? Yeah, I think it's ninety five. Uh-huh. Um, and you know, I don't, you know, it was I believe in the fall time frame, mm-hmm. so it could have you know could have closed in ninety six, but it was ninety five when. When that, you know, we, we got approached and, and did a deal with them. I had read from uh, other GNN people that that went on to AOL uh, after after this acquisition. I had read that they said that in retrospect, it seemed like it was a defensive purchase by AOL that that AOL didn't really want to do anything with it, but they just made wanted to keep it out of somebody else's hands. Yeah, I think it's probably true. Um, you know, I, I think AOL, uh, so from our point of view, we needed more resources to grow it. There was an opportunity here, but we couldn't, we couldn't scale it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, it, I have to say it's, you know, when you're behind that, when you're in that place, it's really a hard place to be because everybody's working really hard and the amount of work just increases, the amount of competition starts to increase and you just don't know what to do. Um, you know, Tim did not want to take money into uh, O'Reilly uh, to finance it, um, and we probably could have spun it out and got some finance. But you know, at the time, nobody really thought there was commercial potential in the internet. I'm, I'm sorry, yeah, you know, there, there just wasn't a lot mm-hmm. going on, uh, and uh, and um, even things like search engines like Alta Vista were sort of sponsored by companies um, and, and run with Skunkworks projects. So um, I can't tell you how many, how many meetings I have with people and say, yeah, this is all cool, but I don't see any business here. Um, mm-hmm. Not just GNN, but just the internet as a whole. Because mm-hmm. um, yeah, I did a lot of evangelizing, you know, with ad agencies, with companies, and uh, even like I remember going to Microsoft and having them sort of poo-poo the internet. Um, it just wasn't, uh, it's, it's, there's nothing here, you know. Uh, and, and I think partly uh, one of the real interesting things about the early web is how 
in a sense, it really was run by amateurs and run by almost non-computer scientists. Uh, it was, and I always found in talking to more um, experienced uh, uh, computer scientists that they underestimated the web because it, it wasn't that complex a system, and that's what they thought it sh something had to be, um, you know, to, to be successful. Uh, so, like even the early hypertext systems, the challenge was, well, how do you manage all those addresses in a in a system? You need a central database that's going to grow enormously to know the, um, you know, how to find the content that might be out on the network. And you know, Tim Berners-Lee solved that in an ingenious way. That one time he, you know, he told me he says, well, you know, I thought of addresses just like the postal system. You can mail something to an address, and you might get it back. Say, so return, you know sender, um, recipient not at that address, or, you know, and so return to sender. Um, it, in other words, he allowed, he didn't have a central database, he just had uh, the, the address as a way of getting to a place, and what you, you know, expect to be there may not be there, and that's, the system could break, and it was okay. And I, I thought it was a really fascinating difference in approach. Uh, um, that he ha he had actually avoided solving a really difficult problem that others thought he should have solved. Um, I'm going to, Dale, you, you, I don't want to take up too much of your time. You've been so generous yeah. already. But there's two more, just real quickly. Sure. Um, two more questions. One would be about your, one of your claims to fame is um, founding the, the term, or <laughs> coining the term <laughs> Web, Web 2.0 and founding, yeah. uh, co-founding the first Web 2.0 conferences. I'm just... Could you just describe for me, um, we haven't gotten to this point in our chronology yet, but when Web 2.0 comes around in, in 2004, 2005, that feeling of, you know, the bust has happened, the dot-com bust has happened, but, gee, things aren't over yet. <laughs> There's still tons yeah. of innovation happening. Can you describe that period of time a little yeah. bit? Yeah. No, I felt like after the bust had happened, people were say, well, that's over. Let's go find the next big thing. And... uh and I, um, and, and it's sort of my own view of being involved in the early web. What I liked was the people that showed up with great ideas and great energy to, to build a website. And they didn't know that there was a business in it or not. They just had an idea. But the web was open enough that they could execute that idea and, and make it public. And I, I, I thought that was the sort of the core of the web that I loved. Uh, and as it even gone through its first 10 years, at the end of that, it was sort of like those weren't the people there anymore. They were the people that, you know, that were making really big bets on how fast consumers would adopt uh, the web and sell things or buy things. And, you know, it was really, uh, uh, um, really all about the money. And, and so when that kind of went away, it, it, it was sort of like a breath of fresh air. And I began, but what led me to the web 2.0 was, uh, in many ways, a practical example was um, Rob Kalish and a few other people starting Etsy, and you know they were just going to build a web a web marketplace, and uh, they thought they could do it on their own. They didn't care about funding. They um, they uh, uh, you know they had their own vision of of what to do, why to do it, and it was almost like just. It made me feel like this is a like a whole new generation of people um, who realize that the web provides them with a framework to you know build the things that they care about. 
they don't, and it's open. Um, and I, I thought uh, T- Tim was also talking about the web, you know, open source and, and the web and the web is a platform. And I, I thought sort of bringing that together is like, hey, the, the web is still exists. And, this, and in fact, it's, you know, it's evolved to the point where it's, you know, it's easier to build things. I mean, you don't have to build from the bottom up, but you can build on top of other uh, things like in the sense of having a stack. And, uh, you know, and I, I thought in general the market was kind of just sort of crazy that there were more people buying online than ever. It was still growing. It was still successful. But it was really the, the Silicon Valley investors had turned away from it. And, I, you know, there was – I just thought, well, this is, you know, the next new thing is the web all over again. And uh, so I called it Web 2.0. Uh, and so finally, you might be uh, best known today as the, the sort of the godfather of, of the, the maker movement, of uh, founder mm-hmm. of uh, Make Magazine, Maker Fairs, all that sort of thing. Um, so if you wanted to, to end by just telling us a little bit about um, the state of, of the yeah. maker movement today. Yeah. Well, you know, it, in some ways, if you think about when I, I look back and I think, you know what, I've kind of, as a pattern, looked for enthusiasts and I've looked for people that I really trust what they're doing because uh, it means something to them. And and then same time I was looking at the Web 2.0, the Rob Kalish's, you know, I just found um, people hacking physical things, uh, hacking TiVo boxes. And, and I thought that's interesting. Um, it's not Facebook. It's not, uh, you know, a, a web app, uh, a mobile app. And it's not a social app. It's people building robots and people building physical things with electronics and other things. And I, mm-hmm. I just thought, well, nobody else is going in that direction. I want to go in that direction because I see people there. I like what they're doing and there's something there. And it's just almost from a gut perspective. Like that's what I want to, that's what I want to follow. And I came up with the idea for make magazine and really going back and looking at magazines like popular science and popular mechanics in the 20th century, Mm -hmm. how they, they really had kind of a hacker attitude. I can do this and it's fun. Um, It's satisfying. And I, I wanted to capture that. And somehow I think, you know, that kind of did sort of light a, a spark for people, um, some of whom were already makers. And, and increasingly, I think, people who never saw that in themselves but now discover it or believe they can develop themselves as makers. So uh, just you would almost say that the through line to your career is you've always gone in the direction of where people were passionate about something, whether – whether yeah. there was money there or not, they they just were interested. Yeah. They had this passion inside them. Yeah, and it's almost like the pre-commercial side of this, mm-hmm. uh, you know. And it leads to commercial stuff. But I'm just I think Tim's it's true of Tim too with open source and and other things. But it it is a um, you know it's there's a sense of dedication and a sense of um, of play that is particular in the make thing that that I thought these people, you know, are playing with technologies to learn about it and see what it's good for. And they will discover, you know, the opportunities faster than those who aren't doing it. And that really, you know, uh, that really captures my attention. Uh, well, Dale Doherty, thank you so much um, for telling us not only the story of, of GNN, but also <laughs> into the present day Web 2.0 and, and, and the maker movement. Thank you so much uh, for remembering all that for us. Thank you very much for asking a good question. 
If this is the first time you're listening to this podcast, please subscribe to us on your podcast app of choice. There's plenty more great internet history where that came from. And if you're a longtime listener, then you know what to do to help us out. Rate and review us on iTunes. Because iTunes gives credit to reviews and ratings, and the more great reviews we get, the more people will discover us. As always, there's more info on our website, www.internethistorypodcast.com. The show's Twitter handle is at NetHistoryPod, and my personal Twitter is at BrianMCC. Thanks for listening.